joined now in studio by Jared Howland, a public affairs consultant and columnist with the Irish Examiner, and by Groin the A reporter with the Journal.ie. Uh, thank you both for coming in this morning, particularly when it's a long weekend. So very much appreciate your company. And once again, dare I say it, it's really nice to have guests in studio because we do, <laughs> we didn't have them for so long that it's really just nice to have some company in here in our little windowless lair. Uh, for we a only while. come because you've nowhere else to go. Well, okay, but th- th- thank you for for making the the proposition sound so much less attractive than it truly is. Um, it is very difficult to get through any of this morning's papers, Jordan. I'll start with yourself on oh. this without an awful lot of uh, coalition woes, as the Business Post describes it on the splash. Uh, crisis, what crisis, as the Sunday Times describes it internally. Um, overall, before we get into the specifics oh. of it, do you think in, in your experience and having knowing a little bit about the internal mechanics of, of a government, is what's happened in the last five weeks, is it down to a little bit of just plain incompetence? Is it down to outright exhaustion? Is it down to a little bit of incoherence between the three coalition partners? Or what do you put the general malaise down to? I think all of the above. I think the political people, their advisors, have been going flat out really since before Christmas. And then there were through at least two years when there were several almost general elections Mm. that didn't happen. Um, They are on empty and have been on empty for some time. Um, similarly, their 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 political staff and so forth. So I think tiredness is is a is a factor. Secondly, it's a long time since the Greens or Fianna Fáil have been in government, and with the very few exceptions, nobody in the Greens or Fianna Fáil has actually ever mm. been in government at all. So it's not even like they have it's muscle not, memory; it's, they it's have to learn even, their way no, into it precisely. And and all of that makes it more difficult. Then you have the fact of three parties, because this is coming after a government that was almost a one-party government. Mm. Uh, you had a Finnegan Labour coalition before that, which was quite structured and two relatively large uh, established parties. Uh, so there's nothing quite as complex as this since the Rainbow Coalition. And then even that was different because it was midway through it all mm. um, and, and Labour had been, been in government literally the day before that, that government was formed. And then I think there's something else, which apart from all that the happenings and the events None of which really, um, you know, is likely to be a life or death matter for government or be much remembered in, in, in a few months, let alone two or three years time. You don't think a lot of the things that they've been dealing with will be remembered in a few months time? People won't remember the rushed legislation to give junior ministers a pay bump, which they're now not taking. People won't remember the confusion around a pay increase or pay deduction, which wasn't in fact a pay deduction at all. They won't no, remember I, I the, the scandal over PUP and whether or not you could or couldn't go on holiday with it. I, I don't think many of these things are nearly as interesting to people out there as they are to us in, in here in the bubble. Um, I think people will think in two or three years time of where they are, where the country is. Um, the problem for these things is an unending succession of them are creating a general impression about mm. the government, which is negative. And I think the general impression is important. But I think underlying all this is something else. I think the problem, particularly uh, for Fianna Fáil and the Greens, is that they have essentially, and you're listening to you talking to Roderick or Gorman, uh, they've committed an unnatural act in the sense that they have taken their political ambition to be in government. Uh, they have grafted it to the fundamental orientation and purpose of the respective parties and they have driven that party respectively both Fianna Fáil and the Greens into a cul-de-sac where they have left on their left flank Sinn Féin outside that is going to constantly monster them on every single issue Uh, and they um, 
are, are in something that just doesn't speak to their values. Well, would that not always uh, be the case, though, that irrespective of whatever actions there were in government, they were always going to have Sinn Féin on their left flank complaining about what the government was doing anyway. Well, except, but it, it doesn't, they, don't, they don't have to keep walking into so many unforced errors. Ex- ex- yes, except what they should have done is the blindingly obvious thing. And this is this is all consequential now and it's too late. The trap door is shut. Uh, is they could and should have uh, Fianna Fáil and the Greens attempted to do something with, with Sinn Féin. So they're in something, a paradigm that's fundamentally crushing for them. And these particular events add to that, mm. but the inexorable end is really predictable from the very beginning. Uh, Cronia, try and give uh, Fianna Fáil and the Green Party something to get out of bed tomorrow with having just heard that fairly damning forecast from Jared just now. <laughs> well, I, like watching it, it does seem, I take the point that if it's a series of blows, it's like a you know a boxing match yeah. where if you're hit in succession, you have yeah. no time to it's recover. Like death by a thousand cuts. Uh, yeah, yeah, essentially. Well, uh, much bigger than um, tiny cuts. Some of yeah. them, like I don't necessarily agree that like the PUP thing won't be remembered, particularly because it's part of a trend of Fianna Fáil or Fianna Gael kind of uh, cynicism about people who are on welfare um, and, and the leader of their party being the social protection minister that started that kind of, um, uh, I suppose, yeah, series. The of, welfare of, cheats targeting. Yes, exactly. Mm. And I think that kind of plays into that. So that will give that legs, essentially, um, especially because Heather Humphreys has been uh, in three departments and has experience. So you can't blame inexperience on that. She knows her department. She knows um, how to be a minister. Uh I think that there is a chance, you know, there's a couple of reports in the papers of Radker saying that we need to get ourselves together for the next round. Mm. Um, and I'm hopeful that that is all it is. But it does, like, I'm I'm, I'm quite cynical about, you know, all the scandals have hit all parties. Fianna Fáil with Barry Cowan, the PUP thing, thing and Fianna Gael, And then the whip issue mm. might be actually more of a boost, maybe, if anything, oh, for well, the Greens. On, on that note, what did you make of Roger Gorman saying that they've been assured that this isn't going to happen again? That they're prepared to just write it off as being a one-off infraction I mean, and say no more about it? Nessa Horrigan has said that she couldn't stand to, to vote for, for this and she didn't think, she, she just couldn't vote it on a point of principle. I don't know how you can guarantee that that won't happen again mm. particularly because she has resigned the whip and she said you know made a big thing of being separate to the Green Party's main kind of stream so I think that's really mm. um, difficult to, to completely promise now the inexperience point comes into this though if she if she if the Greens are saying well we're in government now and if we want Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael to support our policies in the programme for government mm. when they don't. The shoe has to be on the other foot. Exactly. And and that's kind of, maybe that is the is the way it was explained where they were like, okay, I've misinterpreted yeah. how what it means to be in government yeah. with parties that I don't really see eye to eye with on a lot of issues. Uh, whether that happens is another thing though, because at the end of the day, politician, like an election will be mm. in people's minds because this government seems so unstable. Well, can I wait to that, Jer? Because I actually thought that that's what you were going to get at when you talked about parties committing this unnatural act. I thought you were going to say that you had government TDs who were declining to support something that the government itself was proposing. And I don't know whether if, you know, the, some of the explanation that we're being given for that is that the Greens are perhaps almost a little bit institutionally naive and they don't realise that actually no government responsibility sort of extends to everything that government does. Do you think that it's sort of tenable for the Green Party to continue to go along on this basis that they just, oh, we didn't realise that we had to vote in favour of everything our government is bringing forward? Because that seems like a fairly, you know, an unwritten act of sacrilege to those of us who, who know this political system a bit more. Um, I don't think what those two Green TDs, one of them a Minister of State did, was naive. 
I'm quite sure it's deliberate. Uh, both, uh, you know, have extensive experience. Um, one was a long time, as Roderick O'Gorman said, a long time uh, councillor in, mm. in, in Fingal. Uh, Nessa Hurrigan is a very smart, able person, and I would like to do them the justice of paying them the compliment of believing they knew exactly what they were so doing. Th- why do you think then they got such a light touch? Do you think that Eamon Ryan basically doesn't have the internal clout within the party anymore in light of only just barely hanging on to his I, job I, that he I, couldn't I, discipline them any further? I think Eamon Ryan did the only thing he could do in the circumstances, which was make a mark. Hope it doesn't happen again. We've heard Roderick O'Gorman tell you this morning they have undertaken mm. it won't happen again. I, I don't see how it won't happen again, mm. by the way. Um, I think what Roderick said to you will be revisited uh, sooner rather than later. Um, and um, this is this is an ongoing problem. And I don't see the Green Party surviving in government without some defections. The, the, the other two parties are furious about it as well. Mark McSharry has a line... Um, in the Sunday Business Post today where he says he calls it the free love appro- approach of the Greens to to <laughs> voting in, in the Dáil. Elaborate. Uh, Explain. He basically says um, difference and diversity is great but he calls the free love approach of the Green Party TDs and ministers when it comes to voting with the whip is worrying for the future. Uh, mm. And I obviously that's slightly tongue-in-cheek and Mark McSherry and Willie O'Dea are very similar mm. in the sense that they're both the Fianna Gael, Fianna, yeah. Fianna Fáil, Fianna critics, backbench mm. critics of, of the two parties. But um, I think there is an acidity to that criticism that will damage things in the future mm. if they don't start to find a system that and, works. For and them. we should remember that what's happening is both Minister of State Joe O'Brien, Deputy Nassau Hurricane in the Greens, uh, Deputy Mark McSharry and Willie O'Dea mm. on the backbenches of Fianna Fáil, they're supposedly talking about each other. But every single one of them, every time, is acting from speaking to an agenda that is primarily motivated and about their internals of their own particular so specific it, is it, is it Who was Mark McSharry speaking to? Was it the Greens or was it Micheál Martin? Or was it uh, those who worry about Fianna Fáil's identity and who want the party to know well, that they, those, they can still those, shoot from the hip and the back those, benches? Those now who laterally, after the event are worried about uh, Fianna Fáil's identity would have been better placed thinking about it before the event when they sat on their hand and did nothing for months. There's a good uh, quote in the Indo, sorry to be um, uh, bringing it back to them, but it was brilliant. No, please do. It, it said, uh, it talked about how there were uh, joining or um, groups of Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael TDs gathered at the end of the Dáil term and there were two separate groups of Fianna Fáilers and one, one person told the Indo uh, there is no split in the party there was equal amounts of bitching about Michal Martin in both pubs <laughs> <laughs> so, well, excellent like line that kind yeah. of, that kind of split yeah, in the party at least it, it's a fully balanced party because it's got a chip on both of its shoulders um, <laughs> Jared, can I, can I put you just before I draw a line under the whole question marks around the government and, and its instability or perceived instability. Do you believe that the one, I'll put it this way, one Fianna Fáil TD when, when news broke that only of Nasser Hurrigan's continued voting mm. against, but also then Joe O'Brien as a junior minister mm. declining to support a bill being brought forward, by the way, by his own constituency colleague, mm. as well as the Minister for Housing, um, Dara O'Brien. They said that the Green Party explanation that was being put forth by Nasser Hurrigan was that this wasn't contained in the programme for government and therefore she sort of felt that she had tantamount to a free vote. She'd mm. have liked to support it. She wants to do her best to improve the bill as she saw it. And that's that's the rationale behind which she was voting. 
they made the argument that well pretty much every budget contains certain issues or has to deal with issues that arise that weren't envisaged in the programme for government if you get to two or three years down the line and there's talk of a European treaty that wasn't something envisaged in a programme for government and yet you'll have to have a cohesive government view on it what it speaks to is a greater reservation within the Green Party that in fact government is a sort of thing that you live with every day for five years at a time and people will wonder whether in fact the Green Party is cut out internally to be in government every day for five years at a time yeah, well I mean look most of government is made up under Huff because it's reacting to events there'll be a whole series of events that are anticipated in the programme for government that the government will decide on a policy direction mm. there's a whole range of stuff that is below the level of the programme for government which must be dealt with and got on with mm. so all of this is actually complete utter nonsense uh, and, and do you, you think know, they know that? I, I, pardon? do you think they know that? of course they do they're very smart, able people. I, I re, you know, they shouldn't be patronised as n- newbies or idiots. They know exactly what they're doing. Uh, Grony, just before we go to a break, and I just get your take on the front page story in the Sunday Times today, suggesting that the revisions to the PUP and the fact that it's now on a legislative footing means that it's coming out of this social insurance pot, which might seem like a very archaic or some somewhat academic idea to a lot of people. But what it means is that the PUP is now coming out of the same pot as the state pension is, mm-hmm. and people now raising questions as to whether it's possible to defer an increase in the pension age if three billion has been taken out of that fund for the PUP. And the pension age was one of the big issues that wasn't really mm-hmm. resolved in the in, in the of government talk. Yeah. So this is kind of a very um, charged thing to, to um, they're basically pitching two issues against one another, the PUP thing and the state pension age. I don't think that's going to be enough to justify deferring the state pension age, partic- particularly because um, it is such a divisive issue for all three of the parties involved and they have to have a proper talk about it. It's not going to be good enough that, you know, well, mm. there's not enough money there it is a short term kind of problem really to the long term issue of what we do with the the people, the older people in our society and how we look after them properly. Um, and But it does raise the PUP issue again. Mm. Why was the, you know, wh- what are we going to do with it long term? How is it thought of within government, mm. within that department of social protection? Uh, and I think there's a lot of questions to be asked about how that was all handled mm. Um you know, by the current sure. government. Jared, you have thoughts on that, no doubt? I do have thoughts. I mean, I think the uh, pension age is completely unsustainable. I think it is outrageous that we have a politics that's competing with each other to refuse to do what we decided to do 10 years ago, which was go to 65 mm. to 66 to 67. We eventually must get to 70. Uh, if we have the indecency to live on and on and on, we cannot expect it to be pensioned mm. on the basis of a short, relatively shorter working life for an ever longer retirement. And if you have a government based on economic, uh, um, sorry, excuse me, environmental mm. sustainability, I'm afraid we have to have economic sustainability as well. And on that, uh, a very good piece. Well, is, is all of this then, sorry to interrupt you, is all of this then welcome? Because if the government is now being forced through financial necessity to look mm. at the idea of raising it to 67 or 68, then in your eyes, that's, that must be a good thing. In my view, but unfortunately, in the view of those deputies who we have been quoting this morning, I presume they will be suitably outraged again. Um, there is naturally a lot of speculation in the papers growing around uh, the entry to phase four and how much doubt may be cast over that. And we talked about it with Roger Gorman a little bit earlier um, and the reopening of pubs. There's a sense, and particularly in some of the texts that we've already got into News Talk this morning, that pubs are being scapegoated and that pubs have operated, or some of them have, for the last five weeks. And it's not really fair to blame them for a surge that we're only beginning to see in the last three or four days. Yeah, and if it is even a surge or if it's a blip, um, you know, the public health guide or the public health experts have been telling us repeatedly that 
we are expecting to see spikes. We're expecting to see an increase in cases because we're opening up. So people are moving around more. Mm. But whether that constitutes as an actual spike, you know, we saw 80 cases on Thursday and we haven't it's kind of been half of that since then. So that's a good sign mm. in general. And what's really important about those numbers is we know where all the cases that came from. You know, mm. we know where the where the infections happened and that's important for controlling them. The thing about the pubs is and they are the perfect breeding ground for spreading a virus purely through the virtue that when you drink more, your inhibitions lower mm. and there's no fix to that except mm. to drink less or not at all. But have the experiences of pubs for the last four and a half weeks not sort of given the light to that? That They've proven that in fact it is possible but for most of society to go to a pub and have a modest drink and then leave and behave and still act fairly normally. What the pubs are actually doing, the ones that are open at the moment, are acting like restaurants. They're not acting like pubs. Mm. So the ones that don't serve food, if they open up, they will be pubs. But if the new ones operate in the same way, just without the they food. Serve, but, but that's not op- operating like a restaurant then. You're supposed to have a meal and a couple of drinks with that meal and that mm. is meant to be acting like a restaurant. If you open the pub and don't have the meal, it's pure drinking and it's not the same thing. And that's how they've gotten around the kind of thing of, okay, we can open pubs in phase three um, and pretend that they are restaurants, essentially. That is the public health kind of prism mm. through which it's been allowed that some pubs can operate now. Jared, your thoughts on all of this and, and the, the apparent uh, pedestal that pubs have been put on when there are so many other th- concerns, like, for example, the full opening of schools in four weeks? Well, I think it comes down to least worst choices. I mean, I do know the vintners said, and I believe them, by the way, if the pubs don't open, an increasing number of them, particularly the smaller rural ones, might never open. I, mm. and I do take that seriously, by the way least worst choice for the government is to keep them closed. Mm. Uh, the schools have been set out correctly as an overall strategic um, uh, priority. That's going to be extremely difficult, not just within schools, but the schools then will be happening come the 1st of September when another uh, a number of other things are happening. Mm. Such holidays as some of us may be having will be over. There will be proportionately more people going to work. The evenings will be shortening. The weather will be getting worse. More people will be using public transport which mm. I think is quite problematic in terms of some behaviours that I see. Um, the people not adhering to the mask rules. Mask, exactly. I mean, we've gone from 10% usage of public transport or to uh, 50%. Mm. Uh, now capacity. Mm. Capacity, mm. Compar- sorry, compared to the normal, right? Sure. So we're going to be above that in the winter. And all those things combined to get us through the winter where you're going to have a flu season, I think we need to be much more cautious than we thought we could have been uh, even a few weeks ago. Mm. Do you think that there is a concern, Gronya, that although everyone obviously understands the, the societal role that schools have and how important they are to give structure to a child's life and if you're not in school for nine months at a time, how, how desperately damaging it will be to their development, but that people are just kind of assuming that, okay, yeah, that's that's a really important function and kids don't generally get COVID all that badly, so they're grand. And they're sort of overlooking the role that kids can have in sharing COVID amongst themselves and although not falling sick, potentially bringing it home to their families, which that, of course, you know, is, is the whole reason they were shut in the first place. That is going to be a risk and they're going to have to watch it and we could get, you know, I think this is the point of the 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 plan they had for reopening the schools where everything is di- divided into classes and then classes are divided into pods so that even if we get one cluster that we can uh, kind of limit it to that mm. one pod or possibly even that one mm. class and that the, well, the rest of the mm. school could but function. But that one pod or one class could still be seven or eight kids. It could be seven or eight households and the, those households then Absolutely. face the risk of having to re- restrain their own movements that's, too. That's, that's the pandemic we're, we're in and, and I think that the 
the general consensus is that the the payoff of giving pe- uh, kids education and and continuing that as much as possible is worth that risk because there is a certain amount of risk to keep opening society at any level. At, at the moment, if kids go, are going to playground or the beach, there is a, a certain risk that they could catch it and bring it home as well. Mm. So there's no reason to say that, well, the schools is too much when there's a much greater benefit. I think as well, we have to remember if we if the schools don't open, um, in the autumn, there is a massive knock-on for workers, mm, where the childcare child issue becomes an issue. Like that is a, that was a massive concern for the government. If the schools don't open in August or September, uh, workers are going to be uh, at that same kind of um, kind of locked into a, a difficulty of who looks after them, particularly healthcare workers. Mm. The government promised childcare for them and never mm. delivered that because they couldn't. And, and this is in a world where grandparents can no longer be relied on the same way as they always were everyone else's last exactly. resort for childcare up till at, now. At risk and then I was talking to a healthcare worker who had to, she can work and, and go to the hospital but she she has kids to mind at home so she, and she has no other option except to stay at home and mind them. Like that is the situation that people are still in. Well the, ch- the creches are back now mm. but if we don't fix the schools thing that is yeah. going to be a knock-on effect. And, and of course, this is why I wanted to speak to Roger Gorman earlier, because even if he says now that 90% of creches have committed to reopening in September, that still raises the possibility of maybe 10% not opening. And we know how short how the shortage of places that there are right now. Um, Jared, on the, the topic of um, schools versus um, others, uh, it kind of speaks to the broader uh, theme of whether there still is the kind of the genera- intergenerational solidarity and the whole communal wearing of the, the green jersey now, because so many of the cases that we've seen, particularly the, the clusters we've seen in the last three or four days, you know, the median age of some of those people get in those cases is into their 30s. This is predominantly now, in the last week, a young person's condition, perhaps not realising that, yeah, you might be okay. You, you're not going to have the conditions all that badly, but they don't realise that if a someone who's a 20-something or 30-something still living at home brings it back to their parents, then there's some trouble afoot. Yeah, I mean, from the get-go, I know there's one group of people, at the absolute height of the lockdown, when there was overwhelming compliance, there was one group of people who always stood out, typically few more boys than girls, but there were 12, 13, 14, younger teenagers. They weren't small kids who were under the control of m- mommy and daddy. They weren't older ones, maybe a bit more mm. cop on, and they were running around and on their bikes and all the rest. And they just didn't get it. They never, they were never in the zone mm. mentally, right? Doesn't affect me. This is just a school holiday. Whatever. Great news. And this is now, and I presume there's peer group pressure and you only, you know, um, a bit of a nonsense boy or girl if you're not coming out with the rest of us and all the rest. But that's now spread uh, and, and clearly people, you know, well into their 20s and 30s and I suspect older um, are misbehaving and not being as careful and there really is a, a slackening of, of discipline across the board which is particularly so in, in, in some age groups. I mean, I've been on trains um, the last week and I have to say I just thought it was appalling. Really? Just and there's a the nude phenomenon I've noticed. People with masks who wear them dangling from their <laughs> ears. Yeah. And, and Doesn't to say have something, to say something about men in particular, I did a study on the Lewis the other day and it's not exclusive to men but it's overwhelmingly with men. They have the mask on over the mouth but not over the snout. <laughs> That's I, men, men with their snouts, eh? Uh, the yeah. big societal thing that'll tear us all down. We'll wait with bated breath to see exactly what happens with phase four when the cabinet meets on Tuesday. In the meantime, growing in the A of the journal.ie, Jared Howland, columnist with the Irish Examiner and public affairs consultant. Thank you both very much for joining me on the record this morning.